Good morning, church family, and I hope uh, you've had a restful Thanksgiving weekend, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're just delighted uh, to have the opportunity to worship together with you. Uh, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged to serve as a senior minister here at the church, and um, as Emily said moments ago, so this is the first Sunday of Advent, and um, our theme this year for Advent is when love appeared, when love appeared. We're going to be talking about the appearance of love this Christmas. Uh, years ago, I mean years ago, there was a TV host by the name of Art Linkletter. Does that name strike a bell with anybody? Okay. <laughs> you know, he had this show called Kids Say the Darndest Things, and they do. Uh, and often out of the mouths of the little ones come much wisdom. And so children were once asked to define love. What is love? What is love? And here is what some of them had to say. Here's what love is. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over anymore and paint her toes. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. What's love? Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on cologne, and they go out and they smell each other. <laughs> That's what love is. I'll tell you what else love is. Love, um, according to these experts, love is when you go out to eat and give someone most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. That's love. Love is what makes you smile even when you're tired. And here's my favorite. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Children. Children, they get it, don't they? They get it that, um, that yes, love can be shared through gifts, but Mainly, it's about relationships. Mainly, it's about connecting. Mainly, it's about showing up. And that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about showing up. Christmas is about Advent. Advent. Uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And, and the word Advent literally means appearing or coming, or visitation. And do you know that for the last 1,600 years, wrap your brain around that for just a minute, 1,600 years, Christians have been dedicating a season of the year just before Christmas to remember and to prepare for the advent, for the arrival, for the coming of Christ. Four Sundays before Christmas and then Christmas Eve as a time to light candles and hear Christmas readings to remind us of Christ's appearing, Christ's coming, Christ's visitation, Christ's advent. And uh, there's three parts to Advent, actually. Um, 
One part has to do with the actual coming of Christ to Bethlehem. It's what the Apostle Paul calls the mystery of godliness. God appeared in a body, that babe born in Bethlehem. That's, that's one layer of Advent. Another layer of Advent uh, affects us as we prepare for Christ's second Advent, His second coming. Uh, God has promised in His Word that there's going to come a day when Jesus, our King, will visit us again. And it's going to be real. It's going to be tangible. And on that day called the day, the day of his visitation, he will remake heaven and earth into the new heavens and the new earth. This is our destiny. A resurrected body on a resurrected earth serving and worshiping the resurrected Christ. And we await that visitation. That has to do with us. That's the second layer. And then the third part, the third layer, is really personal because it has to do with the question, who rules your heart? Who rules your heart? Uh, This season between now and Christmas is really a season of reflecting, who's in charge of my life? Someone is in charge of your life, someone or something. And this third part of Advent challenges us to make Christ the king, the sole ruler of your heart. So there it is. Advent, the baby in the manger. Advent, the coming king. Advent, the ruler of our heart. And actually, there's a fourth part to Advent, but I don't want to tell you that right now. (laughs) What I do want to do is look at a passage of Scripture that talks about the why behind Advent, why Christ appeared, why love appeared. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. You'll find that on page 998 and 999 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to uh, take that copy. It's in the pouch in front of you and uh, uh, put your name in it. And I mention this uh, practically every week because we really truly want you to have a copy of the Bible of your own that you can call your own and, and keep it in your home or by your bedside or in your desk, uh, and, and to have it and to read it. Uh, um, so please, receive it as a gift from us. We're looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word. Now, these words were written by the Apostle Paul to a minister by the name of Titus, who was sent to the island of Crete in the first century to plant churches and Christian communities. God used Titus to establish Christianity on this uh, island of Crete, and it was a pagan island, and uh, it had been a godless island, but God sent Titus to share Christ. And you know, Titus didn't have nearly the number of resources that we have. Didn't have the 66 books that make up our Christian Bible. He had Titus. That's it. So Paul says, I want you to emphasize the gospel. This is what I want you to impress upon those on the island of Crete. And as we look at these verses, there's kind of a, here is what I once was before I met Christ portion. And then here's what Christ did when he came portion. And then there's a, now that Christ has come and rescued me portion. Did you get that? Did you get those movements? Here's what I once was. Here's what Christ did when he came. And now as a result of that, here's who I am. That's the flow of these verses. Let's talk about the first movement. Let's talk about the here's what I once was part. That's in verse 3. When Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish. Now, you know what impresses me about the Apostle Paul? It's that, you know, he's able to offer a candid assessment of himself. He's honest. He didn't say, now here's what you once were. He says, here's what we were, once were. Paul tells us about the kind of person that he was before he became a Christian. Uh, and his spiritual health and his emotional health, having met Christ and been transformed by Christ, his health was such that he had the ability to go back in time and analyze and critique the life that he lived before he met Jesus. And he was able to just say, here's, here's what it was. He was able to objectively reflect on it without getting bogged down in guilt or shame. That's why he says in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish. And what follows in verse 3 is uh, what some Bible teachers call a vice list. A vice list. Starting with foolishness and ending with hate. And it always goes in that order, by the way. Foolishness 
begets hatred. And Paul says, this is how we once were. And what we learn in uh, just this first verse is, is one of the catastrophic effects of sin. One of the disasters of sin is not just that it causes us to do bad things, if that were all it was. But it goes deeper than that. Sin causes us to think a certain way, a twisted way, a foolish way. Sin infects the soul, and then it kind of goes septic. And when it goes septic, you know how when an infection hits your body, if that infection gets into the blood, I mean, you can become a different person. You can. And Paul calls this infection the foolishness of sin. It affects our minds. It affects the way we think. It turns us inward. It makes us self-centered. And our hearts curve in on ourselves. Uh, earlier this week, I, uh, I bought a book. It's got a thousand and one sermons in it. It's called, it's a thriller, The Encyclopedia of Ethical Failure. You ever heard of the Encyclopedia of Ethical Failure? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Department of Defense puts it out. <laughs> I am not making this up. For the price of a Jimmy John sandwich, I mean, you can be entertained for hours, you know, has real-life stories about government employee foolishness. So, for instance... A soldier was investigated for receiving a briefcase as a thank you gift because he purchased office supplies with government funds for his department. Now, that's a no-no. Yeah. yeah. See, uh, so he was required to return the briefcase. Uh, and then, according to the encyclopedia, he was counseled. <laughs> I wonder what that sounded like. <laughs> Uh, in another instance, in the off time from her work with the Social Security Administration, a senior attorney, emphasis on the word senior, senior attorney opened her own legal practice and represented clients with claims against that very same administration. Now, that's called a conflict of interest, by the way. <laughs> and she was caught, and she was forced to repay $110,000. Huh? Here's a good one. One federal employee backed up his van to the office door at night and stole all of his department's computer equipment. Uh, and a short time later, he was arrested for trying to sell the equipment at his yard sale. <laughs> he was not hard to catch uh, because the computers were still plastered with barcodes and stickers that read, Property of the U.S. Government. Here's my favorite. For several years, two high-level government executives apparently had never taken vacation time. This made investigators curious. And they noticed in the files that these two, although they had never taken any vacation time, they had taken lots of 
religious comp time. Religious compensatory time. Curiously, though, those days never fell on a religious holiday of any known religion. Instead, they happened to coincide with their golf outings. And when they were confronted about this and asked if golf tournaments should be considered a religious holiday, one of the employees said, well, they could be for some people. <laughs> well, the investigators didn't buy that, and they got to retire. <laughs> I mean, story after story after story of what were you thinking? What were you thinking? And, and, and these failures did not discriminate against rank, grade, education, gender. I mean all throughout the whole encyclopedia. In fact, many of the stories dealt with general officers, generals and admirals. You know, these are the people who are planning strategies to win wars. <laughs> what were they thinking? The editor of the encyclopedia commented on this in an interview and said, well, when it comes right down to it, when you sat across from the face of these folks, faces of these folks, and asked them what were they thinking, Typically, they'd just drop their head between their shoulders and say, you know what? I wasn't thinking. But I don't think that we should let them off that easily because they were thinking something. What were they thinking? I'll tell you what they were thinking. They were thinking that they were the exception. They were thinking that they wouldn't get caught. They were thinking that they were special. They were thinking that they were entitled. They were thinking that, you know, because they had worked so many years that they had maybe earned that. They were thinking that with a budget of $4 trillion, who's going to notice a few thousand bucks? That's what they were thinking. And the foolishness of self-centeredness infects us and causes us to live curved in lives where we live our lives and we make our decisions based on our puny little kingdom of one. You know, Adam and Eve were not just after the fruit of the tree. That's not what it was about. They weren't just after the fruit of the tree. They were after the throne of God. That's what sin does to us all. Sin replaces worship of God with worship of self. Sin replaces submission with self-rule. Sin replaces gratitude with demands for more. Sin replaces faith with self-reliance. Sin replaces vertical joy with horizontal envy. Sin replaces rest in God's sovereignty with a quest for personal control. We want to live for our glory. We want to set up our rules. And we ask others to serve our agenda in this little, tiny kingdom of one. The foolishness of self-centeredness. But, but it goes deeper than that, church family. Because the foolishness of self-centeredness affects not only our misdeeds, but our best deeds. 
not just the irreligious things that people do, but even the religious things people do. So, for instance, we start obsessing over our own Christian growth and spiritual formation. We become expert self-analysts, and we begin to track and gauge every notch of progress and regress and victory and loss and growth and atrophy, and, and, and we incessantly ask those, did I do enough questions? Did I, enough, did I spend enough time in the Word today? And, and, and did I practice the presence of God enough today? And did I exhibit enough of the fruit of the Spirit? And was my prayer intentional and purposeful? And did I do it enough? And, and these aren't bad questions, but listen, corn won't grow if you pull it out, out of the ground every day to check on its progress. What happens is that we become focused on techniques of spiritual growth over and above the heart of spiritual growth. And God wants your heart. He wants your heart. And if Christian living for you is defined by your constant asking and answering of such questions, you're probably suffering from a severe case of technique-itis. Because Christian living at its core has nothing to do with that. So do you see how deep it runs? The foolishness of self-centeredness? It infects our misdeeds. It infects our good deeds. It infects our irreligious acts. It affects our religious acts. And once you see how toxic it is, You'll know how silly it is to think that you can educate your way out of it. To think that all I need is a little more commitment and a little more knowledge and a little more information and a little more effort, why I'll be fine. You know what the irony is of the Encyclopedia of Ethical Failure? Here's the irony. So they published it well over 10 years ago as a training tool to sensitize employees as to the reach and reality of the law. All right? But the irony is, they keep putting out revised editions. <laughs> Which tells me this you cannot regulate someone out of self centeredness, you cannot shame someone into selfless living. You cannot guilt trip a person into self-sacrificing love. You can't. And church family, this is why love appeared. This is why love appeared. Verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Uh, our, our only hope is an appearance. Our only hope. Not the appearance of your inner lawyer. God's not, listen, God's not concerned about your inner child. But I'll tell you this much, he's concerned about your inner lawyer who wants to rise up and try to defend you and justify you and argue on your behalf. Our only hope is the appearance 
of a rescuer, a king, someone who would come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is what distinguishes Christianity from every other major religion. You see, the founders of every major religion say, I have come and I will show you how to find God. Jesus says, I am God and I have appeared to come and find you. We sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. And that's the joy of Advent. God appeared in a body and lived a completely unfoolish life of love. Jesus was just the opposite of verse 3. Jesus was obedient and ready for every good work. Jesus spoke evil of no one. Jesus showed perfect courtesy to all. Jesus hated no one. And, and Jesus Christ subjected himself to the foolishness of people, the foolishness of self-centeredness. And why? So that he might rescue fools from their foolishness. And that's the gospel. Christ came to liberate me from my addiction to my own significance. Christ came to rescue me from the prison of my foolish, self-centered kingdom of one. His grace broke through that prison. And by faith, he pulled me through into his big sky kingdom, the kingdom of his father. And through these verses, he says to us, he says to me, Randy, give me your foolishness. Let me take that from you. Let me carry it. Let me take your blame. I'm big enough. I'm wide enough. I'm strong enough. I'm the friend who will never leave you. I am the light behind the darkness. I am the shining your shame cannot extinguish. I am change. I am hope. I am the refining fire. I am the door where you thought there was only a wall. I am gift without cost. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundation of the world, I am. Verse 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Let's break that down. He saved us. You know what that means? It means this. Christianity is not the sacrifice we make, but the sacrifice we trust. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. You know what that means? That means this. Our merits merit nothing. God's work merits everything. But according to his own mercy, you know what that means? It means this. It means that there's a difference between mercy and grace. You see, mercy is God's decision not to punish us. Grace is God's decision to bring us home with him. Someone put it this way. Mercy forgave the thief on the cross, but grace escorted him to paradise. You see, in the heart of God is a desire to rescue fools 
from their foolishness and transform fools into wise heirs. And how? Verse 6. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see that word regeneration in verse 6? It's the only time that word appears in the New Testament. And it literally means, it, you break it down, it means beginning again. Beginning again. We worship the God of new beginnings. And that's good because the past is past. Our past is past. You can't. You can't fix that. The child you neglected and grew up into the adult who will always be shaped in part by that neglect, can't change that. The effort you failed to put into your first marriage left your former and you with scar tissue, and now it's part of you both. Can't fix that. The nervous teenager you talked into trying drugs back in the 80s, the one who had that psychotic reaction to it and is still living at home with her parents, still frightened, still unquiet in the mind, that can't be undone. None of it can. It can't be unpicked. It can't be revised. It cannot be done over again. But it can be forgiven. It can be acquitted. It can be pardoned. It can be covered. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And love did that when love came in the flesh. Don't you see? Christianity is about love who came in the flesh to transform self-centered fools into God-centered heirs. <laughs> and now, as an heir, my past has no hold on me. My history can't disqualify me. My yesterday no longer chains me. And you know, every time we witness a baptism, we are witnessing a symbol of the transforming power of God, of what God the Father did in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And now, as an heir of the kingdom, God takes someone who, instead of being curved in, is now curved upward in self-forgetful worship and curved outward in loving kindness to others. And Paul says to Titus, look, I want you to impress the Christians about this. The Christians, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You hear that? Paul not only wants Titus to preach the gospel to the pagan Cretans, he wants Titus to preach the gospel to the Christian Cretans as well. We all need to be reminded of this glorious truth of who we were and what Christ did and now who we are. We are heirs. We are heirs. Grace was not given because we've done good works. Grace was given so that we might do good works. And you all get that. You get that. Uh, that's why we had 
final count, 802 boxes for Operation Christmas Child. That's why uh, we're asking you to sign up to serve with the Two Trees Week of Christmas at Salt and Light, where, where during the Two Trees Week of Christmas, the store will be completely transformed into a Christmas shop complete with toys and, and decorations and gift wrap. And why people who have been liberated by God's mercy and grace dedicate themselves to the kind of good works that are profitable to all people. That's why nearly a hundred of you are contemplating going on a missions trip in 2016. You get it. And, and, and not just the formal, organizational, corporate church activities are we talking about here in verse 8. We're also talking about those informal extemporaneous to us, but God-ordained events that come upon you and fall into your life. I'm thinking about the family in our church whose door was uh, knocked on on Thanksgiving Day and a homeless person came and, and that family invited the stranger into their home. And that stranger met with Jesus and the host saw Jesus in the face of the stranger, you see. That was excellent and profitable for all. And here's where we get to the fourth advent. Yeah, I told you I was going to talk about it. You see, as we devote ourselves to these good works, we learn that, we learn that this is another kind of advent. The kind that happens not just once a year, the four Sundays before Christmas, but a daily advent where God wants to continue His visitation in this world. And the way He does it is by His followers, His Spirit-filled followers, living lives in such a way that the world sees who the true God is and what He's like as the body of Christ, filled and flooded with the Spirit of Christ, we, church family, our love in the flesh. Jesus, the creator of the world, is this lavish host who has sent out a worldwide invitation to his party. And as his ambassadors, as his hands and feet and body and face and voice, we live in such a way that people want to come to that party and enjoy the true king. And make no mistake about it, the kingdom of God is a party. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul would say this to another minister, Timothy. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Everything, everything created by God is good. Everything, this beautiful truth includes family and turkey and pumpkin pie and raking leaves and working out and paying the bills and reading by the fireplace and playing Monopoly with the kids and laughing at hilarious jokes and seeing good movies and going to theater and listening to car horns that just won't shut off in a pastor's sermon and on and on and on and on and on it goes. <laughs> 
There's so much goodness around. Thank you, Lord, for this goodness, I think. To push it away, to refuse it, would insult our gracious creator. When love appeared, it was to transform selfish fools into wise heirs who know how to share and enjoy all of God's perfect gifts. And if God says it's good, then it's good enough for us because the good is transformed by His grace into the holy. You know, on second thought, maybe a round of golf is a religious experience. (laughs) 